We are in the middle of a series um, called Journey with Jesus. And this is actually one of the longer sermon series we've done. Um, and it's going to take us um, all the way up until Easter. And, and what we've tried to do or what we're doing with this series is we are looking at some of the key moments and the key teachings um, in Jesus' life. Um, we started with the moment that he kind of appears on the stage as a young adult. And then we will follow him all the way to his last moments on the cross to his death, and to his ultimate resurrection. And, and the arc of this series is this, is that Jesus came to do something brand new. He did not come to bring us religion 2.0, but he came to do something completely brand new. He came to shatter all of our categories. And then we said, not only did he come to do something completely brand new, but he came to create a new covenant between God and humanity. He came to create a new way for humans to relate with God. And then he gives us an overarching ethic for all of our relationships, all of our financial decisions, all the things that we do in life, and he refers to this, this new ethic as a new command. And we're going to talk about that more in a few weeks. And then he begins a new movement, the church that we are a part of today. And, and everywhere that Jesus went, a crowd would show up and a crowds would follow him everywhere he went because he was doing something new, something that no one had ever seen before. But the problem was, was the crowds were energized by his message, but they had a hard time understanding what Jesus was saying because they saw it as a continuation of the past, not something brand new. And so one of the members of our church emailed me this week, um, uh, this line that I thought was so powerful that I wanted to read to you because I think it helps give us some empathy for some of the people who rejected Jesus's message. They emailed me this, I would be angry about inheriting and holding to sacred books and law, all, laws all of my life and then along comes this guy who trashes everything I know and this is the line that I love, and everything good that I've ever done. Imagine this, right? You have built your entire life around a system, around a way of living, and you think that you are living the way that is right and true, and then here comes this dude who's drawing massive crowds, saying everything that you devoted your life to is rubbish, and in fact, in fact, there's something new and something better. At the very least, we should feel some sympathy for those who struggled with Jesus' message. For the religious leaders, those who felt that their position in society was going to be challenged. And last week we looked at the story of Jesus um, and his disciples where they, they picked some grain on the Sabbath. And there's this whole argument between Jesus and the Pharisees. And at the end of this argument, Jesus essentially says something that even begins to concern his most devoted followers. Because he says, you know that temple... You know, the center of religious life, the most important thing in our religion, I'm greater than that temple. Just think about that for a moment. Whatever that thing is that you think is central to your faith, right? For many of us, it might be the Bible. Imagine then someone comes along. Imagine I come along and stand up front next Sunday. By the way, I'm greater than the Bible. You're like, dude, you have lost your mind. Even Jesus' most devoted disciples were like, whoa, 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 Jesus. We were with you on everything you said. But greater than the temple? 
And then Jesus would predict, um, he would predict something extraordinary. He would say that the, the spirit of God was going to leave the temple. The understanding was that the temple was where the divine resided. And he would say the spirit of God is going to leave the temple and it would inhabit the hearts and lives of people. And when that happened, everything would change. Because when God's spirit inhabited the lives of people, that would mean that the people who had been untouchable before would now become chosen and sacred. It would mean that people, even like tax collectors, would be invited to dinner and would be seen as sacred and holy. And even Jesus' closest followers got really uncomfortable when people like tax collectors started getting invited to dinner, they were seen to be traitors. And Jesus was disrupting the status quo. Jesus was turning everything upside down. And, and the hope, I believe that the hope for most followers of Jesus was that he would be the Messiah. They knew there was something special about him. He was doing things that no human could possibly do. So they knew there was something special about Jesus. But they hoped that he would be the one to help free them from the tyranny of the Roman rule. And so most people, I think, expected that there was going to be a moment when Jesus was going to make his move. Maybe it would be at Passover when the the population of Jerusalem would swell from 50,000 to 250,000. And they might have thought that Jesus was going to walk into Jerusalem, going to rip open his robe, and there would be a giant M on his chest for Messiah. And he'd be like, it's about ready to go down. But instead, instead of fitting into their expectations, Jesus constantly destabilizes their expectations. And so no one can put him in a box. No one can quite understand what he is up to. So finally, this guy that we're going to see today, we're going to be in John chapter 3, um, beginning with verse 1. But this guy that we, we find today in John chapter 3 is, is a religious leader who isn't rejecting Jesus. In fact, the opposite. He kind of likes Jesus. But he's wondering what Jesus is up to. And so we read John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees are about as low on the religious totem pole, as, like the religious elite's totem pole as you can find. They were kind of entry-level religious leaders. There were a lot of Pharisees. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. Some of you may have heard his name before. Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, the reason I mentioned the Pharisee's status was I wanted to contrast that with the Jewish ruling council. The Jewish ruling council was essentially the president and the supreme court of Jewish society rolled into one. They were the final arbiter. They are the ones who put on and sponsored Passover and all the major holidays. They are the most important body in in Jewish life, and they also have the connection to the Roman emperor or the Roman powers. So somehow Nicodemus had worked his way up from just a regular old rabbi He'd made the right connections, he was political, he was astute, he was smart, we don't know how, but somehow he ends up going from just being a regular old Pharisee to being part, a member of the Jewish ruling council, which was called the Sanhedrin. So we read that, um, so he comes to Jesus, and verse 2, he came to Jesus at night, this is the part of the story that if you know this story, you remember. If you've ever seen it, um, like a cartoon or anything of it, or even just 
in your head. You imagine him coming under a cloud of darkness so no one knows that he's meeting with Jesus. Now that may have been what happened. It's also just possible that that's the only time their schedules aligned. Ruling council, super popular Jesus, they got their calendars together and like midnight was the only time that they both had free. We don't know. But so he comes to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Rabbi, I know you are special. There's something about you that's like no one I've ever experienced before. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. Everyone, it was hard to deny the miracles that Jesus was doing. And the miracles that Jesus was doing were not just willy-nilly miracles. But they were miracles. Boy, I cannot say that word tonight. They were miracles. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. They were miracles that pointed to something bigger and something broader. And Nicodemus was an educated man. He understood what Jesus was up to. He understood that these were signs that pointed to what God was up to in the world. They were not random. So in verse 3, Nicodemus has come to Jesus and he's got a whole list of questions. Like I guarantee you he has written down all these questions that he's going to ask Jesus. This is his chance. And he's got the big one. He's got like this question at the top that he wants to ask Jesus, but Jesus beats him to the punch. Verse 3. So he hasn't even asked anything yet. And then he says, Very truly, I tell you, Jesus replies to him, very truly, I tell you that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, Nicodemus knows about the kingdom of God. He belongs to the kingdom of God. He was born into the kingdom of God. But now Jesus is saying the only way that you can gain access to the kingdom of God is if you are born again. And Nicodemus has got to be thinking, no, 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 you don't understand, Jesus. I'm Jewish. I'm part of the Sanhedrin. Like to, I was born into this, this kingdom. I am part of God's chosen people. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. You, you, you can't be born into God's kingdom naturally. You have to be reborn, born again. Now at this moment, Nicodemus is probably chuckling to himself, and he's like, Jesus, you are so complicated. I don't know what you're saying. And then he says, okay, say you're right. How can someone be born when they're old? I can't, like, shrivel back up and go back inside my mother. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very Truly, I tell you that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. And then Jesus continues, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. His point is, physical birth can get you into the kingdom of Israel. Physical birth can get you certain things in life, But something else is required to enter the kingdom of God. This new thing that I have come to proclaim. Something that is already but not yet. A kingdom that is already beginning to emerge before your very eyes. And then he goes and he has another illustration. 
And Jesus says, look, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. That's interesting that Jesus chooses to talk about the Spirit because it, and Spirit and wind in connection, because in, in, in Genesis, the, the word, when it says in the beginning, and we kind of read this whole beginning part of Scripture, the creation of the universe, it says that the Spirit hovered over the deep. And the word that's used there is ruach, which means wind or breath. So Jesus is pulling on this, uh, this, this imagery, which Nicodemus, pull, which Nicodemus knows well. He says, the wind of God, the breath of God blows where it pleases. Nicodemus, you cannot contain what God is up to in the world. See, because the one thing about wind and walls is that wind cannot be contained. It goes wherever it pleases. If you try to build boundaries or fences, wind does not recognize the boundary in the fences that we've created. So Jesus is using this analogy to someone who has created a box and is trying to fit God with inside of this box. Jesus says, look, you can't tell where the wind comes and it goes. It goes where it pleases. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Jesus is saying, look, we've got all these commandments, all these rules, all of these ways that you can be part of God's kingdom. But Nicodemus, you need to understand, God is not exclusive. He's like the wind. He's like spirit. He moves outside the, the confines of how our understanding. And even though you do have an arrangement, there is a covenant with God. God is not limited by your covenant. God is mobile. God does not live inside the temple any longer. God is spirit. And then I wonder if Jesus didn't say, and, and just to remind you, Nicodemus, our nation was always meant as a means to an end. And in the end, the, the reason that we exist, the reason that we are created is to put God on display and to call all people back to God. He says, Nicodemus, you need a spiritual rebirth. Because right now you're dead inside. You need a spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus has no categories for this. He cannot understand what Jesus is saying. And he has all these other questions he wants to get to. But he is so confused. So in verse 9 he says, how can this be? I don't know what you're saying. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And you do not understand these things? You know the scriptures better than anyone. How did you miss out on what God was up to in the world? Did you really think it was just about you? And then finally, Jesus is realizing that he's losing Nicodemus. And so he goes to a category that Nicodemus knows well. He says, just as Moses, finally Nicodemus gets a little less nervous. He's like, okay, I know about Moses. No more talk about spirit and blowing everywhere. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Now, Nicodemus knows what this means. He's incredibly educated, and he gets, he gets analogies. One of the things that's really interesting about Judaism is that there's a lot of symbolism, religious symbolism. 
and, and Nicodemus knows what this means. It's a story. It comes from the story of Moses in the desert. There is an outbreak of, of poisonous snakes. All these people are dying. And so Moses makes a bronze stake, snake and puts it on a pole. And he lifts it up. And, 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 and so that there can be healing. But it's also a symbol of death. Of suffering. And he, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And Nicodemus knew what eternal life was. This was not an unheard of category for him. It meant life with God. And he also knew how to get eternal life. The way you got eternal life was by keeping all the right rules and doing all the right things, keeping the law. But Jesus is saying there's something bigger going on than just doing all the right things. To get access to God's kingdom, to get eternal life, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, the one you've pinned all your hopes and dreams on will suffer and die. Now, I want to just pause for a moment on the story of, of Nicodemus and um, Jesus and, and mention something that happens often in the, the Gospels. The Gospels are often need to be read in reverse, meaning what takes place often doesn't make sense until after the story is done. So it, it doesn't make sense. What Jesus is up to only makes sense post-resurrection. And when you look back post-resurrection, you're like, oh, I see what you're up to there, Jesus. It wasn't just babbling. I kind of understand what you were trying to say. So sometimes what the gospel writers will do, because they are writing on the other side of resurrection, is they will try to then help us understand what was going on. Or just say, look, you will someday understand this. So for an example, in Luke chapter 9, verse 44 through 45, we read, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Clearly, no one understood what's being said here. So Luke it just says, but they didn't understand what this meant. They, they didn't have the categories. And, and the reason I bring this up is because in the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, in, in, in John chapter 3, this is also where the most famous, this passage is where we find the most famous Bible verse of all time. One that if you grew up in church or you had anything to do with church, you probably heard before, John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he became, I learned it in the King James. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So John is telling the story of Nicodemus and Jesus and then he pauses and gives a little commentary. In John 3.17 we read this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God isn't here, Jesus isn't here to bring condemnation. If you think he is coming to wipe away his enemies and all the people who have done him wrong, or all the people who have done us wrong, or all the people that have done you wrong, you don't understand what Jesus is up to. You don't understand what God is up to. 
God did not come into the world to bring condemnation. Like, that should be, some, for some of you, you literally need to post that somewhere in your house because for some of us, it is hard to move beyond the category that God is trying, of condemnation. Because your religious tradition, the, the story that you were told, the story that you are having a hard time forgetting is a story of condemnation. And John's saying, no, 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 look, you, you need to understand, for God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. Just so you know, this is my, this is my commentary, but he's like, just so you know, if he just wants to condemn the world, he can use like lasers or flamethrowers or something. He can just kill people. If that's what God wants to do. He's no, no, no. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world through him. To bring salvation. To bring rescue. And it's fascinating that the John's, John uses a very broad term. The world. Just in case you didn't understand what Jesus is up to. This is not something that is specific to one group of people. Or one time. Or one place. It is for all people all times and all places for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him and then moving back one verse we read for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life the message of Jesus the message of the kingdom is a message of grace it is a message of redemption It's a story of hope that the story that was written about you, the story that maybe you've been telling yourself is not the story that has to define you because God didn't come to condemn you. It is out of love that he has entered into creation and he is providing you with an opportunity to live differently, to be a part of a new kingdom. Not a kingdom of this world, a kingdom that tells you you need to be successful, you need to earn a certain amount of money, you need to achieve, 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 or whatever the messages that we're presented with on a daily basis. Now, I've come, Jesus says, to bring a new kingdom, a new way of living, a kingdom that has love as its foundation. This is a message for the whole world. Whoever takes a step towards God's future kingdom will be saved. That whoever believes in him won't perish, won't fall away, but will be given a new life, eternal life, abundant life. Or to use Nicodemus's, or to use Jesus' words to Nicodemus, you'll be born again, and you'll be born into a new family. A family is where you have privilege to call God your father. Years later, another Pharisee, who's actually the chief of the Pharisees, a guy who defined, began his career by persecuting the followers of Jesus, in fact, killing some of the early church leaders, a guy by the name of Paul talks about it this way. He says that we have been adopted as children into God's family. God is inviting us essentially to participate in the adoption process. We are invited to become children of God. We are invited to become family. We are invited to become sons and daughters. And for some of us, that means nothing. For some of us, it actually doesn't bring up good images because your, your earthly relationships with your parents 
are strained and broken. But for some of you, just the idea of understanding that God is your father, that he sees you as a son or a daughter, that you are beloved and cherished, for some of you, that can be an earth-shattering realization. That God loves you and cherishes you and wants to be in a relationship with you. Now, when you teach this verse, John 3.16, to kids, essentially, I mean, that's literally the first verse I ever learned. My mom thought I should learn more Bible verses, but I wasn't really interested. So that's like the last one I learned for a long time, too. But anyway, it's like the first and only one I learned for a long time. But, but essentially, the message that I received through that verse was this, that God loved and God gave. God loved and God gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. But then the question is, how are we to respond? God loved and God gave, and we believe and we receive. It's that simple. We believe and we receive. Because getting into the kingdom of God is not about doing the right things. It's about what has already been done. We are given an invitation. And the reason I like the story of Nicodemus is because it... it, it it, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. It backs up a, a belief that I have about God. Because Nicodemus did not have it all figured out. Nicodemus had all of these questions, had all of these doubts. But at the end of the day, Nicodemus gets it. And the reason that I know that Nicodemus gets it is because of how the story ends. Nicodemus appears again. It's not, he's, this isn't the only space he appears in Scripture. He appears at the very end of the story. Now, Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin. He was very busy around Passover. But my guess is, in fact, I'm pretty sure he was in the back of the crowd when Jesus was crucified. And when Jesus was raised up on the cross, you know, they'd lay him down on the ground, and then they'd, they nailed him to the cross, and then they raised him. And I'm guessing as he's in the back of the audience, in the back of the crowd, when Jesus is raised up on the cross, all of a sudden Jesus' words to him that night come rushing back that the Son of Man will be lifted up, will be cursed, will be put to death. And then Nicodemus risks his reputation in his family, in his position, and he gets his friend, a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, and he, he is the one who buries Jesus. He's the one who goes to Pilate with Joseph of Arimathea and who takes Jesus and, and says, we would like to be able to bury Jesus. And it's kind of they're doing it quickly because they're trying to get it done before the beginning of the Sabbath. But the reason I like this story is because Nicodemus participates. He takes a step towards Jesus even though he didn't have all of his questions answered. But he knew enough to know that this man had come from God that something was different, that he was up to something in the world that he wanted to be a part of. And I think one of the challenges that we face is that we have all these questions and all of these doubts, all these things that just don't quite make sense, and so we want to have it all figured out before we say yes, before we accept, before we take the next step. But over and over throughout scripture, we find people like Nicodemus who did not have all their questions answered, who couldn't quite figure out what Jesus was up to. But at the end of the day, they said, I want to be part of that kingdom. 
the kingdom of love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Some of you might be a little like Nicodemus today. You have all these questions, questions that you haven't gotten fully answered. But yet there's something in you that stirs when you hear the message of Jesus. When you read about his life and ministry. When you read about the way that he loved and cared for people. Especially the most vulnerable in society. And if that's you, if you, there's some, you've got all these questions and you're afraid to take the leap to become a follower of Jesus. Because you've got all these questions. I would encourage you to just take the next step. Just say, you know what, I don't have it all figured out. But God, I believe you are who you said you are. And I receive the gift that you have offered. We'll figure the other stuff out as we go along. Because all throughout scripture, what we see over and over again is it's a story of people just taking a next step. Jesus says, come and follow me. We'll figure it out as we go along. Somehow, we have, made, we have commoditized salvation. We have taken this word, which actually comes from this passage, that says you must be born again, and we have made it a one-and-done event. You have to believe all the right things, and you come down to an altar, or you sign a card, or you do the right thing, and then something magical takes place in the ether, and all of a sudden, you and God are okay. But that's not a biblical vision of salvation. A biblical vision of salvation is Jesus saying, come and follow me, and then you just take the next step. And then you take another step, and another step, and another step, and you figure it out as you go along. And the biblical vision is that as you walk with Jesus, as you spend time with Jesus, as you walk this journey, that you begin to look more like Jesus through the power of the Spirit that is working within you. Sometimes people say, Why is it that church people are mean and worse than people in the world? Because some people are just nicer by nature. To be a follower of Jesus is not to be perfect. It is to be a person who is in the process of transformation. It is people who are messed up and broken who aren't the nicest people in the world who need the gospel more than anyone else. It is not about having it all fixed or figured out. It's not about saying a prayer one time, but it's about a continual journey of saying, Jesus, I say yes to you today and tomorrow and the next day, and that your spirit, I invite your spirit to come in and work within me and begin to transform me to look more like you. And what does it look like to look like Jesus? It's perfect love of both God and your fellow human. That's what it means to look like Jesus. Which is why in a few moments, Pastor Ramon is going to come and lead us in communion. And we begin, we approach that table every single week. We approach the table every single week by confessing our sins. What we have done and what we have left undone. What we have done in both thought, word, and deed. And we believe that as we walk with Jesus, that we are being sanctified. That we are being transformed to become people who look more like Jesus. And so this, this evening, my, my invitation is to take the next step, is to say, Jesus, I don't have it all figured out, but I, like Nicodemus, want to follow you and we'll figure it out as we go along. Let's pray.